Welcome to Practical Christian Living. He is the one that guides us. He is the one that leads us. He is the shepherd in our lives. He is going to take care of you. He is going to lead you to green pastures where you can eat. He is going to take you to still waters where your needs can be met. He is going to restore your soul. He is the great shepherd. And when we give our lives to him, we are not like sheep without a shepherd. We have a shepherd who is our savior. A popular 80s song really had it all wrong when it posed the question, what have you done for me lately? Well, in the kingdom of God and the heart of a servant, that question is reversed. What can we do for others? And more importantly, what have we done or what do we have to offer God? In our series, Jesus Appointments, we look at his appointment with the 5,000 and Jesus's heart to be our great shepherd. We're starting out in John chapter six. Keep it right here. Here comes Robert Furrow. Father, we want to thank you again so much for your word. It is rich, it is powerful, it is deep, it is profound. It is of more value than anything that is in the world because it saves our souls, because everything in this world is perishing, but the promises of your word will abide forever, which makes it the most valuable thing on this earth. There is nothing that is more valuable to us than the promises of Scripture. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would teach us these things today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We are in a series called Jesus Appointments, and we are going through different appointments that Jesus had with people and groups like today, and the lessons that we can learn from his interaction with these people. The title of the message today is The Appointment with the 5,000. That's the boring title. I do have a subtitle, do you have anything to offer God? That's what I'd like you to think about here at the beginning of this study. When you think about what you have to offer God, your gifts, your talents, what you might be able to do for the gospel, I, I wanna make it broader than the church because the goal of the church is to get the gospel out into the world, that's the goal. So what do you have to offer God with the people that are around you, with your family, with your friends? What do you have to offer God with your finances, taking care of the poor, taking care of the church, which is doing the work of the gospel? Do you have anything to offer God? And I gotta think that there would be a lot of us here who would go, well, not much. You know, I don't know how much what I give, what I can give is gonna make a dent, is gonna make a difference. You know, nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us to tithe, nowhere. It talks about tithe some, and tithe was around before the law, and tithe became a part of the law. But in the New Testament, we give what we consider in our heart, what we determine in our heart to give. That's what 2 Corinthians 9 says. You determine in your heart what you're going to give, knowing that when you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. When you sow abundantly, you reap abundantly. That means that sometimes you're not able to give a tithe because of your financial situation. Maybe your fault, maybe not. Maybe it was not good financial decision-making, Maybe it was just what happened to you. Maybe it was bad decision-making and, and you can't give much. And you think, well, I don't know what I give. What's, what's that going to do to being able to pay for the electric bill for the church to continue to give the gospel out? And you think it's not much, so you don't do it. Or you think I'm not very talented. I don't have many gifts. I don't share my faith very often, so you just don't do it. You just don't feel like you can do it. And I want you to consider that now. What do you have to offer God? In... Uh, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus meets with this multitude of travelers. It's during the time of the Passover. People are on their way to Jerusalem. 
on their way, they probably heard about the miracle worker, Jesus, and on their way, they hear where he's at and they all run to him. They're all going to see him. This is the only miracle besides the resurrection that is in all four gospels. So I wanna say that again. This is the only miracle besides the resurrection that is in all four gospels. That shines a special light on this miracle. It's as if God is saying, this is something I really want you to hear and I really want you to understand. It is nuanced, it is layered. There's an obvious lesson, then there's a less obvious lesson, then there's a less obvious lesson, and then there is what it was supposed to be about. What this whole thing is about, why Jesus fed the 5,000. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament, then you realize that this is not unique to what God does. You know, there are three things that this looks like in the Old Testament. First of all is the obvious. God provided for the children of Israel manna from heaven for 40 years and 40 nights. God provided bread for Israel. And Jesus is now going to provide bread for the masses. The other two, Elijah, provided food for 100 people with insufficient. He didn't, he didn't have sufficient food to feed them. He fed 100 people with it. So Elijah did this miracle, but Jesus is on, is on steroids. He was for 100 people. Jesus does 5,000 men plus women and children. I don't know how to calculate that out. Probably somewhere between 50 and 20,000 people are being fed by Jesus. So it's as if there's a greater than Elijah here. That's what he wants to show you. He's not just a prophet like Elijah. He is greater than Elijah. And the Bible tells us that. There's also another one that I, I saw here as I began to study this. When I read that he sat them down in the grass in groups of 50. And I got thinking, well, there's not a lot of grass in Israel except in the spring. We're going to see this is during the time of the Passover. So that's the spring. The last time that we were in Israel, it was more beautiful than I've ever seen. The, the flowers, the growth was just incredible. We went up onto a mountain ridge and just looked over this green valley and we all commented, it looks like Ireland. It's what it looks like. It, lo it is so incredibly beautiful. It looks like Ireland. But when it says that he sat them down on grass, and then I was reading all of the different gospel accounts. And in one of the other gospel accounts, it says that he looked at the people and he had compassion on them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he makes me lie down in green grasses. And Jesus sets them down on the grass. He provides us still waters. And it was by the Sea of Galilee. He has mercy on them because they don't have a shepherd and he feeds them, he restores my soul. Jesus is presenting himself in this miracle as the great shepherd. He is the one that guides us. He is the one that leads us. He is the shepherd in our lives. He is going to take care of you. He is going to lead you to green pastures where you can eat. He is going to take you to still waters where your needs can be met. He is going to restore your soul. He is the great shepherd. And when we give our lives to him, we are not like sheep without a shepherd. We have a shepherd who is our savior. So all of these are nuances from the Old Testament for this story. And then there's other obvious nuances that are here as we get into this account. So we pick it up in John 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Why were they following him? Because he was the Messiah? Because he was a great man? Because they loved Jesus? Because they wanted to see him more? No, because they saw the miracles that he did. He was a miracle worker. They wanted to see the miracle and a great crowd followed him. 
This crowd would be much larger than normal because we have people who are going to Passover, and we'll point that out in just a moment. But here's what's happening. If you read the passage before this, Jesus has just learned that John the Baptist is dead. The disciples have learned that John the Baptist has died. And it was a, it was a brutal death. To hear that someone dies in any way is hard. But to hear that there was a drunken party and that Herod saw his stepdaughter dance and then said, I'll give you, seductively, I'll give you half my kingdom. And she said, prompted by her mom, bring me the head of the Baptist on a platter. And in this drunken party, they go down and get the head of John the Baptist and they bring it up on a platter. If you knew John, it would hit you so hard that this righteous man had died that kind of a death. And so Jesus says to his disciples, let's get away. Let's go to a private place. They've been ministering. People are there. This is a crowded time in the ministry of Jesus. He's been ministering to people night and day and day and night, and the disciples are exhausted. And, and getting away in a time of grief is so good. Being able to get away and get to a mountain and be able to collect your thoughts and be with those that are grieving with you is so incredibly good, and that's what Jesus wants to do. In fact, he does it for a little bit. They need more time than this because the crowds are so demanding, they don't get that much time. So they get in a boat and they go to the other side. And the people are waving at him as he leaves. There's a big crowd of people. And as soon as he gets out on the water, they start running. And the, the other gospels tell us they run around the edge of the Galilee so that when Jesus gets off on the other side, there's the same people. <laughs> and it's not that dramatic, but you'll see. That's what happens. They come around and they don't leave him alone. And the disciples say, please make them leave because they're like you and I. I don't necessarily like crowds. I don't like when I'm trying to get into a football game and it's like we're a bunch of cattle, you know? And I've, I've got this thing that I do and we do it in Israel too. If you've been to Israel with us, this happens. They feed us all into this area and we're with other people on tours and it's like, we're just like, mm, mm, mm. I would rather just be there by myself and walk in. But when I see a bunch of people, I just think they're in my way. Why are they all here? I just want to be here enjoying the game. A few of them I wouldn't mind, but they're all here and they're bugging me. You know, the concession stand line is long. This is awful. When Jesus sees a crowd, he sees all of the pain, the sorrow, the suffering of every single person. Jesus has compassion. We know that the disciples say to Jesus, send them away. In one of the other gospels, send them away. Lord, we came here to get away from them. Send them away. Jesus responds much differently. It says in verse three, and Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Well, there it is there. They're dealing with the grief of the loss of their friend, their leader. Because remember, some of the disciples were also disciples of John the Baptist. Andrew, John, we know for sure, maybe even some of the other disciples had been following John the Baptist. This was a particularly difficult moment for them. And so they go up on a mountain with Jesus and they attend to their grief there. It says, now the Passover, the feast was near and when Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these to eat? Now we know from the other gospels that when they looked and they saw the great crowds, that, that they said, send them away, Lord, get them away. They were like, this hasn't been enough time. We need more time to be able to deal with this grief. And, and by the way, there's no way around grief. You just, you've just got to accept it. Sometimes you see people move on really quickly from grief. And that's, in my opinion, that's always a mistake. I have some experience with my own personal grief, and I know that you have to take it full on. 
it would be nice to get distractions and get away from it. But, but you've got to really go through those periods and those times of grief. It's the only way to get through it in a real healthy way, to come out the other end and, and to be able to remember the, the joy and the blessing of having that person in your life. If you push it away, then it ends up being an open wound that festers for, for long periods of time. And so they've got to now deal with the crowds again. Verse 6, but this he said to them to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Where are you going to buy food for all these people, Philip? Where are you going to get it? And he tested them because he knew what he was going to do. This is going to be, he's going to use this as a great analogy. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii. That's 200, that's 200 days wages. 200 denarii is not enough bread. It isn't sufficient to feed them, every one of them even a little bit. Where are we going to buy food? We don't have 200 denarii. Where are we going to, we don't, where are we going to get it? One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here with five barley loaves. Interesting side note, every time we see Andrew in the Bible, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Every time Andrew's brought up, Andrew brings Peter to meet Jesus. Andrew brings the Greeks to meet Jesus. Andrew brings the boy with the five loaves to meet Jesus. Andrew is an example of the Bible of bringing people to Jesus. We want to be like Andrew. We want to be aware that people need to come to Jesus. I don't need to be anything spectacular. I just got to bring him to Jesus because he's spectacular. So if I'm just bringing him to Jesus, that's all I need to do. And so he brings this lad and he has five barley loaves and he has two small fish. And then it says, but what is this among so many? And here becomes what I believe is the obvious lesson from this. And that is that I have five barley loaves, I have a couple of fish, and God says, I want you to use them for me. Give them to me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use them. And we say, well, what is that among so many? So many people do not give to God of their gifts, of their talents, of their finances, because they feel like, what is that among so many? What am I able to do with this? And God's going to give us a great lesson here. You know, the Lord, and I talk about this when we have our offertory Sundays, but it's really true. I'm hoping that during this message that there are people being impacted. I hope people are being encouraged. I hope by the end of it that God's doing something spiritual in people's lives. But I realize that, that God could do that without me, that God could supernaturally minister to your heart. He could do that in any way that he wanted to. He could have you see a sunset. He could, he, could, he could work in your thoughts in a gentle way and he could get whatever he wants to convey to you, however he choose, and he could do it better than with me around. But God chooses to use me and I, and I make things worse. I don't do it as efficiently. I get on rabbit trails. I tell stories. I just, you know, it's like I don't communicate as well as God could do it, but God allows me to do it. It reminds me of when my youngest son I was in the mode of restoring cars when he was four or five years old. I'd restored a 69 Chevelle SS with a 396 in it, by the way. And I restored a, uh, a 68 Camaro that I put a 454 in. But it was fun to do. I don't do it anymore. But it was fun just restoring those cars, using some of the skills I learned as a young man, as a, as a mechanic and an auto upholsterer. That's right. You're learning the Bible from a mechanic and an auto upholsterer. Uh, using those skills that I had then was fun. But Chris would always want to help. He was always wanting to be around, you know? He's like, I want, can I, can I help you? And, and certain times it was great. But other times, it's, it's difficult. I'm underneath this car. I'm trying to put these headers in. There's no room for me to get my hands in there. And he's like, can I help you? And I'm like, all right, come under here. All right, take, take this wrench and tighten that down. And I'm just, look over there. There you go, finish it up. 
you know? He just gets in the way. And I think I get in the way of God. But God says, that's what I want. God has chosen not to do it on his own in a more efficient way. He does it the inefficient way and he lets us get involved. And God wants all of us to be involved. God wants to use you to touch the lives of people around you. And then he gives you rewards in heaven. Don't stack up treasures here on earth, but stack them up in heaven. And God is able, when you invest in the kingdom of God, he says you have rewards in heaven. So God lets me do what I do now. And if I'm doing it with the right motive, which is a whole other question, whether or not I am, but if I do it with the right motive, then I'm going to be rewarded for it in heaven. God not only lets me do what he could do more efficiently, but he rewards me for it. But we feel like, well, what is that among so many? Well, it's a lot. It's a lot more than what you think because our God can do something with it. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Verse 10, now there was much grass in that place, so they sat down in numbers of about 5,000. The other Gospels tells us that was just the men. So there was women and children. There's a large number of people. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. What did he thank God for? Lord, I thank you for these five barley loaves and these two fish, that we may enjoy this meal among 5,000 people. You know, the Bible says, do everything with thanksgiving. The Bible says, don't worry, don't be anxious. But everything in prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. When's the last time that you thanked God for something that was insufficient? I don't know, this isn't going to meet the needs. When's the last time you said, Lord, I thank you for that? That's what Jesus does. He thanks God for that which is insufficient because God has the power to meet our needs. There's a great biography, and I don't know how many people read it today, but it's the George Mueller biography. Are you familiar with it? It's a fantastic biography of a great man of faith. He ran orphanages, is what he did. His whole life was taking care of, of fatherless children. And uh, there's a great story where he didn't have any milk for the kids. And he sat them all down on their tables, and all their glasses were empty. And he said, Lord, I want to thank you for this meal and for this milk that you have provided. In the name of Jesus, amen. And then there was a knock on the door. And there was a, a, a guy delivering milk out front. He says, my truck just broke down. I got all this milk that's going to be spoiled. Do you need any? It's like, what a crazy thing. But I wonder how much God's looking for us to have a little bit of faith that we might just say, what I have right now is not sufficient, but my God promised me that he's going to take care of all my needs and it will be sufficient. God will take care of it. And so he thanks God for this, and then he distributes among the disciples. Notice again, God's not doing things himself. Jesus, he could go around and give the bread to everybody. He could supernaturally just make bread appear in front of them. But he doesn't do that. He uses the disciples. And this is a sign to us that God is using us as salt, as light, to go out in the world and to, to meet people's needs. And so then it says, so when they were filled, and likewise the fish, as much as they wanted, they could eat as much as they wanted. He just kept doing it, kept doing it until they were done. So they sit back and go, I better quit this amazing food. So when they were filled, his disciples gathered up fragments that remained so that nothing was lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves that were left over that had not been eaten. So each of them go out and they gather up a basket. And when they're done, they got 12 of them. You think it's any coincidence that there's 12 disciples and there's 12 extra baskets full? That God isn't saying to us when we're doing God's work, look, I'm going to give you more. 
what is that among so many? What do I have to offer among so many? And God says, I want to even make it more. I'm going to make it more than sufficient, what you have to, what, what I can do through you. Because our God is a God who multiplies. Paul said to the Corinthians, he was raising money from the Gentiles to minister to the Jews that were in Jerusalem that had been impoverished. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, I don't want your money. I want, I want you and the fruit that abounds to your account. And then he said, and God will multiply your gift. I love that. He's saying, what, whatever you give, God's going to take that like a seed and he's going to multiply it. I believe that God multiplies our gifts. I believe that when we give, we give by faith and that God does more with that than what we could do normally with it. God multiplies what we give to him. And that's why when you say, I don't have much to give, but I'm going to give it anyway, like the woman that gave her two pennies in the temple, and Jesus said she gave more than everybody because she gave away everything that she had. He was more excited about those two cents than he was the big sacrifices or, or the big offerings that were given. So I encourage people, give. Always be a giver. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. So, so God will give back to you sparingly. You abundantly. Be generous. Always be a giver. E even if you're, you're, it's really tight, be a giver because it's not about that. God will take that that you give and he will use it and you will receive a reward in heaven because of that. That's not why we give it. It's just amazing that God does that. That we take whatever we have and it might feel very insufficient and we give it and then God does something with it that's amazing and then God gives us a reward in heaven for what we were by faith giving to him. That's what we're doing is we're living by faith. In verse 14, it says, Then those men who had seen the sign that Jesus did said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, at this point, they might be getting close because Moses said, There's going to come a prophet like me. And they're like, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. And Jesus just gave us bread to eat supernaturally. Maybe this is the prophet that is like Moses. But they still don't understand who Jesus is. And so then we go to uh, verse 26. Jump ahead a little bit. So what's happened in the interim is that Jesus has left them and they're continuing to seek him. They're continuing to search him out. They find him in another place. And Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He says, truly, I'm telling you, the reason you keep looking for me is you want me to make you more bread. You want me to provide for your needs. That is always the wrong reason to follow Jesus. He said he would. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. But that's not why we seek him. And one of the great false teachings of our day, which has a resurgence now, is the false teaching that God wants you rich, God never wants you sick. There are new teachers who are teaching it, and there are a lot of people who are believing it. It's really easy to get people to believe that. Jesus wants you rich. Amen, brother. I'm in 100% agreement. God wants you to never have a problem, to never be sick. Amen. I, I want that too. But when you begin to study the scriptures, you see that it is full of sacrifice. It is full of persecutions. It is full of tribulations. It is full of hardships. And there are all kinds of people today who teach that what God wants from you is for you to be rich and they ignore these other passages. Some of them say the only thing that we can do is listen to Jesus and the rest of the Bible is misunderstood and Jesus never said that you were going to have difficulties, which is a lie, by the way, because Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. 
pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kagan 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.